0: I'm sorry there are no slides on a screen this morning. Uh, I'm from a generation that was brought up when slides were in a playground, and they're not on screens. And normally the slide was wet, and you couldn't uh, go down it. And then when you got to the top on the steps, there was some kid who was let loose, who knows who they were, and they're coming up the slide uh, rather than the steps. Is that still going on in these days? Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, So no slides. I'm very sorry about that. It's a generational thing, isn't it? And thank God for different generations, and I pray that Jesus will close the generations in his truth this morning as we, all of us, from youngest to oldest, look into whatever he has to say to us in terms of his truth. Living a God-centered life on the way home as pilgrim people, that's really where the Psalms of Ascent Uh, place us. So I need to introduce the Psalms of Ascent just briefly, and then we will dig down into Psalm 120 in particular. So Psalms 120 to 134, we meet a people on pilgrimage. They had a journey with a holy purpose. They left their homes three times a year to go to Jerusalem in order to gather together with other believing Jews to celebrate the living God who had chosen them and redeemed them and shaped them into the people he wanted them to be. So Psalm 122 verse 4, for example, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So the flow of the journey is important, and I want us to maybe remember this flow of the journey, uh, even throughout all of our other considerations in the Psalms that are about to come. Here are a people who get up and go out and leave their homes. They would have to keep on walking, even when they were tired, on the road that led them to Jerusalem, however long that road was. And they would gather with all the other tribes for a festival of celebration to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. And the pilgrimage that they engaged in told the the big story of the flow of their lives. They were committed to living a God-centered life in their home situation, wherever that was in Israel, and en route to the big gathering, they sang praise to God together in preparation for arriving at that celebration. And yet throughout it all, they were summonsing the nations to join in this great journey. So Psalm 100, 100 they, they come to the nations and they say to the nations, join us in celebrating Yahweh as the only God the living God, leave your idolatry. That's the flow. We are a pilgrim people. If we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, we have left our self-centered lives to worship the one and only God. We are en route to the eternal celebration in the new creation When we will see Jesus face to face and not only sing his praises, but we will live lives of worship that are perfect and without self in them. And while we're en route, personally in our life situation, and together as a group of people, we learn to live God-centered lives in this world And as we do so in the gospel, even this morning, we summon people to join us, come to Christ, follow him, be saved by his grace, learn to live to the glory of God in a world that doesn't, and one day arrive at the great celebration that is eternal and which we will never separate from. So Psalms 120 to 134 are a mini hymn book for the journey of all pilgrim people, including ourselves, this morning. So now to Psalm 120. And I have two things to say this morning. Pilgrims feel the distress of living in a world that is against God. Pilgrims feel the distress of living in a world that is against God. That's where one, Psalm 120 puts us. Living God-centered lives, I need to say it, in this world has distress in it. The distress is a result of our identity in wanting to honor God in a world that does not want to honor God. Rebellious humanity, of which we were a part once, are committed to idolatry and will not tolerate, will not tolerate a commitment to honoring God. And I don't need to prove that to you this morning. You're sensible people. You live in the world that I live in. Your life situation will tell you that. The distress, therefore, is both personal and it is also communal. And Christ-centered people as we attempt to be, though not perfectly, know this. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, this world that is against me and against my Father, this world, this rebellious humanity, you will have trouble. But the good news is that we have peace with the Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ in the trouble." So all pilgrims need to sing in lament and tell the Lord our pain in living out his identity. Now, it's been great to sing, hasn't it? Objective hymns that take us out of ourselves and tell us the great things about God and his Son. Great songs, aren't they? But we also must learn, and I think maybe we have lost something of this, of lamenting in song, of expressing our pain, that we are resident aliens spiritually and morally in this world. And if we have known anything of that, it is right, and we need to hear it, to tell the Lord together, even in song, this is what they were doing, the pain that we're experiencing. Not now in a fallen world, though we are in a fallen world and there is pain in that. But we must understand that the distress that is coming here is coming out of an identity of honoring God and glorifying Him in a world that doesn't want Him. And therefore we must always remember the salvation of flow of our lives. We have left our self-centered lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven of all our sin. The wrath of God has been removed from us. We are his beloved children, and we are his people living out his purpose in the world under his rule, and one day we will gather with all the people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus forever in the new creation. We've got to remember that flow. We're in that flow now. Even coming here demonstrates that salvation flow, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We have left our homes. We have got up and we've come out, some of us further than others. And we have gathered in a local fellowship. No, we haven't come to Jerusalem to a temple. We're not Old Testament people. And what have we come for? Breakfast? A social gathering of chit chat? No, we've come to celebrate the Lord. in the anticipation that one day we will perfectly gather with all other gospel churches throughout history and in the present age before Jesus. We're in the flow. That's the story. That's the story. That's our story. And for many of us, that's my story. We can leave our home and go to a longer festival, can't we, of celebration. We might go to Word Alive. We might go to Contagious or another camp. And all of this may give us temporary relief from the world in which we live in. trust, We trust that it's a means of grace to strengthen us in our personal God-centered lives for the life situation to which we're called. But it's only a temporary relief, physically. Because outside, my friends, when we go back out there, it's to the world that is still against God. And we are never out of that world until we die. Well, the distress is described in two ways. Notice the weapons of attack. Look at verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Verse 3, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? The most effective attack weapon in the history of humanity to destroy the good reputation of God is not a nuclear bomb. It's not an invasion of another country. It's not bullets and bombs. It is words. And lying words often dressed up as truth. It may take the form of false teaching. It may be a distortion of Christian belief. It may be malicious gossip about a Christian. It may be fake news. It may be slander. But it is still the most effective attack weapon that Satan has against God and against his church. The cultural tongue will tell lies about God's people to discredit the truth and destroy the reputation of the God under whose rule we live. So we should expect it and not be surprised by it. That's the first part of our distress. Second is the pressure of war. Look at verse 7. He ends the psalm by saying, I am for peace, but they are for war. Israel was surrounded by idolatrous nations. To the north, there was Meshach in modern Turkey. To the south, there was Kedar, the desert area. God's people were in the middle, surrounded by a lifestyle, at war with God's created will. Well, they were all idolatrous nations, and there is continuous pressure. I don't know how you are under pressure. I'm not that good, to be honest. I, I, I go to pieces. There you go. I'm not the hero of the piece. Then let's think about cricket. Now, you don't mean you not know, like cricket. That's okay. Don't worry. You may not understand cricket. Never take an American to cricket. Sorry, anything about Americans? I love them very deeply, but uh, uh, Americans in cricket, no, not going to happen. But let's pretend you're going to out to bat. You've got yourself all padded up, and you've got your nice wooden bat. You've just bought it specially, and you're going out to the middle, and the middle is the strip in the middle where where, where the batting takes place. And the moment that you step out, to take your place on the batting strip. The pressure is all around you, and it never goes away. The fielders surround you, and they talk to you, and they're not saying to you, oh, isn't the grass nice? It's well cut today. Nothing about that is being said to you. Pressure from the fielders. The bowler is coming from a long run with a hard red ball. No, mostly red anyway. And he looks a bit angry. And you come to the conclusion on the first ball that this is sporting war. And the pressure, well, you'd rather be anywhere else than here. Where is the escapism that one could engage in? Can I say to you, the church has a history of trying to escape the pressure. Monasteries and other places of hiding away. But the pressure is always around us. And it never goes away. And all of that may make God feel distant to us. And far away in his new Jerusalem. So lament is to tell God the distress of living God-centered lives in a rebellious world at war with God using attack weapons and putting pressure continuously upon us in some way or other. And it is part of our sung worship to create a wholehearted trust in the Lord that is real and true. That is distress for pilgrim people. Secondly, trusting in the Lord brings hope to live a life of worship. We need to go positive. The pilgrim people under fire develop trust in the Lord. They cry out, in verse 1, for salvation. There's only one person they can turn to. And turning to this person has a very long history indeed, including Psalm 120. In my distress, verse 1, I call to the Lord and he answered me. Here is a truthful tongue speaking to the Lord. There's all this cultural talk going on around the person and, the pe- and, and his community. But he spares more to the Lord than he says to the culture at that point. And there are two things here. A pilgrim people who turn to the Lord for salvation and continue to turn to the Lord for salvation will entrust themselves to the justice of God. That's what happens in verses 3 to 4. Now, the emphasis today, if I understand it, is to insist we work for justice to remove all injustice, cancel culture or whatever that might be. And I'm sure that we should work for justice as best we can to remove injustice. And we certainly, as God's people, must stand for the truth of God and his righteous reputation in this world. But as pilgrims, we must learn to talk to God about the war that is going on against us as the people of God. We need to talk to God. We need to do it in our personal lives, as we face this, we need to do it in our communal life, like a prayer meeting tonight. Tell God the pain and the distress. Yes, some people are facing persecution as followers of Jesus in our world. We are not so much facing persecution, but we are facing propaganda, the ideology of secular lies and they are very seducing, and they are incredibly deceiving. So we must entrust ourselves to the justice of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. They're a bit disturbing, aren't they? What shall be given to you, and what shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, and with the glowing coals of the broom tree, It's an appeal to God for justice, that the God of justice who has his weapons will take out evil either now or forever. God has the skill of a warrior pulling out uh, his arrows. Old-fashioned stuff, I know, but nonetheless, it makes the point. And the firepower, God has to back it up. The broom tree could produce charcoal, and their fire could be... uh, lit. It's a disturbing image, isn't it? We believe in the God of love. We do believe in the God of love. But God so loves the world that he'll take out evil. Could you imagine me as a father over four little boys and Linda as mum? and we just allowed evil to do whatever it liked with our boys. Your conclusion? You don't love your sons. We cannot have it that the God of justice, because he's a God of justice, is not a God of love. Indeed, his justice is part of his love. Many years ago, A surgeon came into the room where we were sat and said to my wife, you need radical surgery to remove cancerous growth. I'm sure that was not pleasant for my wife. I wasn't happy to hear it. Radical surgery is required. And I think we are actually naive if we think that evil can be kind of negotiated with. The Lamb of Revelation rules in justice over the earth. The Lamb who bled and died on a cross and who rose again from the dead in order to save people. The Lamb is the one in Revelation who rules in justice over the earth. Continuous justice comes on the earth against sin and there is a reminder of the ultimate day of justice when the King, Jesus, will ride forth on his white horse. And the message... Repent and be saved. And all of this comes together at the cross. The cross is where God pointed the arrow of his justice at himself. And the fire of his wrath, his settled anger against sin, fell on the son. cross was the ultimate fire power of god burning itself out on the sun so that god could reach out to us in love and when we entrust ourselves and our injustice to god the injustice that comes with identifying with honoring god a beautiful life emerges and with this we're now finishing Because the second point under this head of a whole life of trust is that we're freed to live at peace in the war. Look at verses 6 and 7. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Christ must have read Psalm 120. The Christ, who is our peace with God, rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. He did not ride a great white stallion, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he would ride a donkey in his triumphal entry. God decided, listen to it, to deal with evil and make peace with those at war with him. And he thought that the best statement of intent would be his son riding on a donkey. Today's term, driving some inferior car, whatever that might be. Christ rode that donkey in humble and joyful service. Yes, Christ the warrior fought for us on the cross. There is no doubt about that. But Christ the servant brought peace with God for us. As we have said, justice fell on him, and we live at peace with God. He was for peace. We, as rebellious humanity, were for war. Christ is our peace. That's the flow. And he will come in justice at the end of the age as the warrior king. So we can now live lives of worship on the way to the glorious celebration. We can live out Romans chapter 12, for example. Let me read those to you because they're pertinent. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, never leave it to the, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And entrusting yourself to the Lord like this, what happens? Look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome; be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The church is the living model of the big story. The spiritual warfare we're engaged in is to fight evil and live at peace. No, there is no toleration of sin. But we must maintain a deep love for people who are broken by sin, enslaved to sin, ruled by sin. I remember standing in a city where, not Liverpool, somewhere else, uh, there was a pagan parade going on. I didn't agree with that pagan parade. It was intolerable to me. This is God's world. God alone is to be worshipped. It was intolerable to me. It hurt my heart. It did hurt my heart. The top end of the high street were a group, I believe, of sincere Christians. And I can still see their faces now. It looked as if they hated the very people in the parade. We have forgotten the flow of our story, haven't we? We must not tolerate sin. But we must have a deep love for people. We are for peace, not for war. We can turn to the world and share the good news of the gospel. We can tell people the seriousness of sin and the awesomeness of God's holiness. We proclaim the amazing death and resurrection of Jesus. Be reconciled to God, we say, and end the war. And we must learn to speak faithfully about that. And we must learn to speak also wisely and sensitively about that. And as we do so, our miracle takes place People who are at war with God, hearts are softened, hearts are opened, they repent, and they trust in Jesus. 68 million people are Christians in China today. 68 million. How did that happen? In a country that is supposed to be closed to all Gospel influences. The gospel that is presented in itself has power to convict of sin, yes, and bring a people out into salvation. So, in the great mercy of God, we have got up in Christ and we have left the world spiritually and morally. We have come out as Christ's saved people who trust in him alone. We trust in Christ with the distress of our journey in this world that is at war with God. But one day we will gather before Christ in the new creation and celebrate him and his salvation forever. This is the flow of the whole story. We are a pilgrim people. Sometimes we think we're going to be here forever. Sometimes we think we're invincible. We're a pilgrim people on our journey home. We need to prayerfully sing and lament about the pain of identifying with honoring God and following his son. And yet yet we need to also joyfully trust that we are at peace with God in the Lord Jesus Christ and ready for the ultimate day of justice and celebration. And we do that better together than apart. Let us pray. Let's take a moment. Yes, others are moving forward. You're not responding to me. So let's respond, shall we? In your grace, O oh God, you have invaded our lives. And it is a beautiful thing. You have invaded our lives at the, in the person of your Son, who bled and died for our sins and bore your justice away. And we are loved. We have left the world spiritually and morally. And we are on this journey now, a journey of wholehearted trust in you. You see our pain. You see the distress of identifying with you and honoring you. And that takes many forms for each of us in this room. I pray that us as a communal people will know what it is to learn to lament with each other and sing, sing lament in prayerful ways that helps us be refreshed and renewed to go back to our life situations where there is sharpness and soreness. And yet there is great joy in knowing you. You are our Father, we are your children. You will never let us go. We will be in that great celebration. We will arrive. We will see you face to face. We will be presented perfectly with great joy by the Lord Jesus to you. We pray that we may always remember this flow. That just coming to church or living out our lives, we're in the middle of the flow. And that flow should always be the story that emanates from our lives. And now we pray for the world. Lord, if we are right about the world, it is in a serious situation. We pray for people enslaved by sin, at war with you, will not honor you in any way. And we pray for mercy. If you have had mercy on us, will you please have mercy on them? And bring them into the joy of knowing you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.